Welcome back to the Stable Moments Podcast. If you guys have been listening to this podcast and you're like, okay, Rebecca, like, what can I do? What can I do about it? I really want a practical thing that I can involve myself in that's really going to help end the foster care crisis. Well, today's guest is going to tell you exactly how you can do that. Her name is Marla, and she is from the Essex County CASA program, and she is going to tell you all about what being a CASA is, and a CASA is a court-appointed special advocate, but what that is, what they do, what the training is, what the time commitment is, how involved they are, and some of the amazing outcomes that happen when CASAs are appointed to kids in foster care. So if you've been wondering about what a CASA is, or you don't know what a CASA is, but you do care about kids in foster care, today's episode is for you. I am going to roll that intro, and then we will jump right into Marla's interview, who is the executive director for the Essex County in New Jersey CASA program. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local community. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much, Marla, for joining us on the Stable Moments Podcast. I'm excited to have you. Um, And I can't believe that I haven't had somebody on yet that is even a CASA, like a volunteer, or somebody that is leadership at a CASA. So you are leadership at ACASA. And for our audience, I'm going to have you explain what CASA is and then your role specifically at the CASA that you run. Great. So thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I always love to share more information um, about CASA and what we do. It's, you know, of course, something near and dear to my heart. So I'm just going to first tell you about CASA in general. It's a national program There's close to a thousand programs across the United States um, that serve as CASA programs. Uh, It was started in 1977 by a judge in Seattle, Washington, David Sukup, who was interested in doing a better job for the children that were coming across his docket. So he was a family court judge and he felt like he needed more information about these children and to make a better decision. So he enlisted volunteers from the community to, you know, work alongside of these children and the stakeholders in the judiciary to find out really what's going on in these children's lives, the day-to-day nitty-gritty, right? And just to be his eyes and ears. And so the program worked and they expanded it and what became the National CASA model. And now, like I said, we have close to a thousand programs across the United States. In the state of New Jersey, we have 14 programs. Um, We're all independent 501c3 um, nonprofits. 
Casa of Essex is where I am from, Essex County, which covers Newark and the other 20 municipalities in Essex County. And we are the oldest CASA program in the state of oh, New Jersey. Wow. We were the first one developed in, in New Jersey. So we're, we have some history there behind us. Yeah. I'm just curious because you said you're all independent 501c3. So how does a, and I know like in, in my county, it's called like Friends of Children, Brevard County. And then it just happens to be our CASA program. And that's housed under that nonprofit. So how do they get started? And is it like they license the CASA model or how does that whole work? Right. So it's a it's a pretty intensive process because everyone follows through um, the national CASA model, which is our umbrella. We all use, for example, the same logo and the same taglines. And more importantly, we all have standards in which we must follow. So the national program has standards to operate a CASA program. And we go through certification every year with the national program to make sure that our, we are in good standing with them and that everybody is following what has been developed as the best practices in this role, because we are volunteer-based organizations. You know, we are not a party to the litigation cases in which children are in foster care, you know, docket. So what I mean by that is that If the CASA is not involved in a case, the case continues on through the court process as it's supposed to. We like to see ourselves as an added benefit. We bring so much more. We bring, you know, the ability to not only make a relationship with the child, but also tell the judge what's going on in that child's everyday life. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about, because I know that there's like a little bit of brand confusion or depending on where you are, you hear guardian ad litem, you might hear CASA. So what does CASA stand for? What's guardian ad litem? Are they the exact same thing? We are the exact same thing in this realm. Um, CASA stands for court appointed special advocates. And, you know, the difference is depending on state law, for example, in the state of New Jersey, and this is going to get really technical, in a private litigation for divorces and child welfare, there can be a guardian ad litem, which is an attorney that's working with that family to work some of the issues, right? But for our intents and purposes, when you're a CASA or GAL program, you are the volunteer-based organization. The name is more based on your state mm. um, and how your, your court system works in your state. So for New Jersey, we are CASAs, which is Court Appointed Special Advocates. We have a specific MOU with the AOC, which is um, the realm of the courts that sort of dictate the policies and structures of the court. So it's a very stringent process for a nonprofit to get started up and actually be um, use the CASA model. So what does the process look like for an individual? Because CASAs are, like you just said, uh, court-appointed special advocates. And those are just people in the community, right? Yes. So our CASAs, our, our volunteer advocates come from all walks of life. They are, you know, your everyday neighbors, your teachers, your homemakers, your plumbers, um, you know, anyone over the age of 21 who has an interest in helping. And, and they're from all walks of our community. Absolutely. Where do you find that you get the most um, cost of volunteers? I think it depends on, you know, thinking on my colleagues throughout the state. It really depends on the geographic area that you live in. You know, for example, you know, in Essex County, it's a much more urban area. So we get a, a very large range of volunteers. But then when I think of some of my colleagues down further south in New Jersey, they get more retirees, you know? Mm -hmm. And so really, I think what it is, is once the mission speaks to someone's heart, 
that's when they decide to step up and be a volunteer. And I always like to say, it's a very big ask. You know, it's a very important issue. And what we ask of our volunteers is a very big ask. So talk about that. What is, what's the ask? What's the commitment? What's the role? So first of all, you have to be 21 years of age. You go through um, a pretty extensive interview process. And that interview is to make sure you're a good fit for the program and the program's a good fit for you and those two align. And then once you go through that, we have 32 hours of training, pre-service training that you must attend and complete. And then you have court observation in which you have to observe court. Then you're sworn in by a family court judge and it's official. You know, you're an official CASA once you're sworn in by that judge. And then you're assigned your case. And you are, when you are assigned your case, you also are assigned um, a supervisor, an advocate supervisor, who is a paid staff with the CASA program. Okay. And so they are your coach and your mentor as you're working through this case. And we uh, ask that you stay on for um, an average of 18 to 24 months. 18 to 24 months. Great. Mm-hmm. So with 18 to 24 months, you could roll off before a case ever gets resolved. And does a new CASA need to be appointed then? So two things happen. Well, a couple of things happen, actually. That's a good question. A lot of times, once a volunteer is on a case, they come very attached and they want to see it through to the end, mm-hmm. which is longer. Sometimes it's in that time frame, which is an average time, but a lot of times it's longer. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, sometimes children are in foster care longer than that 18 to 24 months. So they stay on. Right. And then sometimes life happens and the volunteer has to roll off because their personal life may change. They may move. They may change jobs. Something like that may happen where they're unable to continue to be a CASA, which is understandable too. So at that point, we have another CASA step in and take over from where that CASA left. What's the average number of cases a typical CASA takes on? Is is it usually just one or... The benefit of a CASA, unlike our counterparts, so for example, the Division of Child and Family, which in New Jersey, we call it DCPNP, a caseworker, social workers, people more commonly know them as, they have multiple cases, multiple children. They have, you know, 10, you know, they have 50 to 100 kids that they are are, are managing those caseloads for. The benefit of a CASA is they have one case, which typically is one family, one child. It may be a sibling group of one to two children. But for the most part, it's one case, one child. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I've talked to somebody before that has like nine cases or something, but it's funny because I, um, I have run a nonprofit mentorship program and like people will go through the mentor training and immediately ask, can I have more than one kid? And I'm like, not for the first year. And always after the first year, they're like, one's good. And that's only one hour a week. So I can imagine (laughs) the commitments plenty just having one kid. So, you know, on average, it's probably, we like to say five to 10 hours per month. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not overwhelming, you know, and, and of course, some months might be busier than others, just depending on what's going on. But if we tried to give someone a gauge to see how much time it would take, we say about five to 10 hours a month. Okay, great. So tell me about how those five to 10 hours a month are used. Like what's the day in the life or month in a life? Right. So every case is different. You know, and I neglected to tell you that we work with children from birth to 21 years of age. So depending on the child's age, a lot of time dictates what's going on on the case. You know, when we talk about our population that is 14 and above, that's the age group that tends to age out of foster care, meaning that their permanent placement is independent living or they age out, which they're no longer in the system. And they're basically young adults on their own. Mm -hmm. And so their needs are quite different. 
you know, because we're trying to set them up for success for what life looks like as a young adult, whether that's to live on their own, to get a GED, to go on to secondary education, to find a job, you know, all those life skills that youth need to be successful. So if you're working with a youth like that, there's a different role. It's more of a mentor role that you're working with that youth to help them, you know, be self-sufficient as they enter into adulthood, right? Mm -hmm. But if you think of the younger children, you know, a lot of times we are placed on cases where they have education issues, you know, things that need some extra attention. The child might be struggling in school. They might need an IEP test. They might need extra tutoring. You know, all of those types of things happen. So that tends to be what time is spent on with the younger children, you know, because they're school-aged. And while they're in foster care, those are the types of things that slip through the cracks is, you know, is someone paying attention really to what's happening in school day-to-day opposed to not when the report card comes or not at the end of the year when the teacher says, oh, this child is not going to move on to the next grade. Mm -hmm. You know, no one wants that surprise. You know, these children shouldn't just be a surprise. So it's important that someone is paying attention all along, you know, through their development through that school year. I didn't realize. So I thought that ACASA was, you know, a kid needs representation in core and ACASA would, you know, understand the child's perspective the best they can, depending on age. And they would go and see how their child's home life is or see how they're doing and spend time with them to get to know them so that they were in a position to give their recommendation or speak on the child's behalf in court. But it sounds like they there's a whole bunch more that they can advocate for, meaning advocating for these IEPs, advocating for maybe a driver's license or getting employment or mentorship, which is much farther than just giving your perspective at a court date. So we advocate, our classes advocate in and out of court for the youth that we serve. And we do not officially represent um, any youth in court at all. You know, we are there to provide an unbiased opinion and we serve at the discretion of the judge. Right. So we are there to provide a report to the judge on things that are working well for the child, things that aren't working well. If he um, has ordered some services for the child to have, are those actually happening? Are they, you know, benefiting the child like it was anticipated? Is it causing some problems, you know, that weren't anticipated? So we are just, you know, sort of boots on the ground, eyes and ears for the judge. You know, the judge is in his chambers, he's in his courtroom, he doesn't actually go out and physically see, you know, where the child is and where their school is and how they're interacting with friends and family and their resource home, which is their foster parents and their placements, whatever that may be. You know, so that's that's the value add that we bring back is we're able to give him that information, him or her, in real time, right? It's it's not what happened six months ago. You know, we visit the child monthly. So when the case is being heard, which is typically every three months, we can tell the judge really what's been going on in those three months in that child's life. Because anyone who has any type of a relationship with a child, whether it's a parent, an aunt, teachers, whatever, we know a lot happens in a child's life in three months. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about the process of like a child a child getting appointed a CASA. Right. So, you know, it's at the discretion of the judge. So in New Jersey, you know, when a case comes through the court system, if the judge wants a CASA on the case, he orders it. And that's pretty much how it how it goes. And then, you know, the paperwork is done and then we are signed a CASA to the case and they start working on the case right away. Do you have any like time frame in which you assign a CASA? Do you ever have issues with like who do we have or limits of CASAs? 
you know, so if I'm speaking for the network on a whole for New Jersey, I think we do a really good job of always being in the community and looking for new volunteers so that we have volunteers that we're continually training so that those those cases that we're assigned to aren't lingering, right? And, and so we make a point to make sure that we're always ready. And when those cases come in, you know, that we're asked to serve on, we, we can take them right away. You know, there's, there's about 2.5 million children in the state of New Jersey. About 6,500 of them are in out-of-home placement. And about 10% of those are in Essex County in, in the county that I work in. And so, you know, with those numbers, it's a lot of work, but we, we, we really try to do our very best to make sure that all the cases that ACASA is assigned to, we can be there for them. So what does the, um, the work look like as far as like ACASA's job to document what they're seeing and then to actually, do they like write up a report? Do they speak in court? Like very tactically, what does it look like? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So because you're sworn in by a family court judge, you know, you have access to everything that's a part of that child's life. You can see their health records. You can see their education records. You can talk to their doctors. You can talk to their biological parents. You can talk to the placement where they're living. You can talk to school counselors. So you have access to talk to all of those people. Right. And you also have the best access, which is to the child. Mm-hmm. So you have the opportunity to meet with the child and talk with the child and engage and interact with the child. And so then you write a report to the judge, mm-hmm. you know, and that report is submitted um, for the next hearing, which, as I mentioned, comes up about every three months. So you submit a court report for what you've seen and engage in the conversations that you have. Again, unbiased recommendations for what you have observed, you know, in this child's life. And then when you go to court to the hearing, the judge has your court report and can ask you questions about what you've seen and heard and what you've put in your court report. Yeah, that's really neat. Uh, One experience that I had. So um, I stable moments is a program that matches up uh, foster adopted kids with horses and mentors. And um, we would have, of course, just community mentors meeting with their kiddo. But once in a while, a CASA that was assigned to that kid would say, hey, you know, it would be nice if I could come out during their mentor session, see what this is about, meet with the kid there. So they might actually do some of the meeting with the kid before or after their mentor session. Then they got to see what they do. They got to talk to me a little bit as a service provider. And then I had one situation where that CASA then asked for like their progress summaries and their plans of care that we had developed and was able to incorporate all of that into her report, reported that to the court. And then the court actually court ordered our mentorship program, which allowed us to get funding. So the service got more funding because it was court ordered. Um, And of course that kid got to stay in a service that that we felt was critical for them. And obviously the CASA did too. So yeah, you're right. Those, it's pretty interesting. Like the CASA is able to go where they need to go and kind of do that investigation where caseworkers honestly don't have the the bandwidth to do all of that. Exactly. So, you know, that CASA was working on one child, you know, and Mm -hmm. a caseworker might have 50 to 75 children Mm -hmm. and they're one person. So it's impossible for them to do that. So they have to do their job, which does not <laughs> give them unlimited time and resources. Yeah. Can you tell us about one or more successes where you were just like, oh my gosh, like had this kid not had a CASA or what this CASA was able to accomplish, like did X, Y, and Z for a kid? You know, it's nice that I can say I've seen so many, you know, I, I can, I can think of a case where, 
you know, there was one youth that we were assigned to and um, the youth was LBTQG and, um, and transgender. And just working through those issues was mentally tough for, for her, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that her CASA helped her work through, you know, what that was like living, you know, in this society today. And, and, and I can tell you now that that youth has, has found her voice she got her GED. She was looking at secondary education and just thriving from that perspective. You know, when, when the case first started, she um, was a male and was having problems having people recognize, you know, her as who she was presenting herself to be. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a big deal, you know, because with the help of the CASA, everybody that was working with her and including the um, caseworker and the judges recognized that she was a trans youth and it was important to respect that and, you know, and to acknowledge that. Yeah. And then I can think of other cases where, you know, kids have gone off to college, which is really nice. You know, they graduated. It's always nice in November. We have national adoption day, you know, which is a huge celebration in the courthouse. It's the happy day in the courthouse when, (laughs) you know, some of the children who find their permanency placement are adopted, you know, into their new forever family. So that's, that's always very exciting too. Do CASAs ever keep in touch past their official time with a a kid? So, you know, when the litigation closes, the CASA is removed from the case. It's closed. If the CASA has developed a relationship with the youth or the family, yes, they, they, they do. But that's personal. That's outside of our purview and our realm. But we do know that those relationships have been established. Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine. That's really neat. It seems like so... I've thought of like a CASA as like, okay, there's an abuse case going on and there's a a representative for the parent and there's a representative for the state and the CASA very much can represent the child. Um, But with you talking about a CASA being present for a child that may be in um, a group home or they may be getting ready to age out of foster care and there's really not like a, a current maybe uh, TPR has already happened, and there, but there's just still in state's custody. So the CASA still stays on during, because I don't know why I felt like the CASA was more involved in like the TPR process, but does it not matter as long as the kids in foster care, the CASA stays on? As long as it's out of home placement, mm-hmm. which okay. means that the child has physically been removed from their placement, their place of residency, which is not always with parents. Sometimes it's grandparents, whoever, you know, they're legally living once the child is um, in out-of-home placement, that's when a CASA can be assigned to the case. Now, every child has a different permanency plan, right? And so those permanency plans can be reunification. It can be adoption. It can be um, independent living, which is when the older youth are, you know, young adults living on their own. Or, you know, sometimes it's that the child unfortunately is in care until that permanency plan is determined. But the goal is to establish a permanency plan for every youth. It's just every youth has a different plan. Mm -hmm. And so as long as they're considered out of home placement and have open litigation, which means their case is still being heard in family court, a CASA can be assigned and stays with the case. Now, what about um, cases where they have been removed? So they're assigned a CASA, but then they've been reunified, but they're still, they're still, is there time when there's reunification or like they go back to their biological parents' home, but the case is still open and they're still seeing court? So, uh, yes. So when the child is reunified, the court doesn't just say, 
Right. Okay, we're done. No <laughs> you supervision, know? right. Exactly. There's a there's a time frame in which the court makes sure that everything is is okay and that the reunification plan is working as everyone had hoped. All the services are, are still um that are still in place are are being used and are are you know helping that family. You know, there there's the Family First Act, which is you know, relatively new, but the goal is to stabilize these families. Years ago, I think that a lot of the removals that we saw was abuse. Actually, the removals we see now are neglect, mm -hmm. which a lot of that is based on poverty. You know, oh. you know, the I thought you were going to say substance poverty. use. Nope. You know, substance abuse, believe it or not, for, for my county, I can't speak for everyone, right? But for, for my county, substance abuse is not the main reason that we see um, the children removed. It's neglect, mm -hmm. which typically means homelessness or, you know, inadequate ability to take care of the children. You know, it's, it's medical or educational neglect, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So the CASA does stay on, though, in those during that reunification period where the case is still open. I would just feel like it's such an opportunity for the CASA to be able to actually go into the um, home of origin and see how it's going um, and be those eyes and ears directly after reunification. Once the, yes, and once the litigation closes, that's when we come off. So, okay. you know, the, the relationship, we're not watchdogs. So we don't go in to report and say, yes, this family is going well or no, this we're out there to make sure that the kid is, the youth are settling in well. And if they may need some other services, you know, and, and that's a viable option until that litigation actually closes because we can go back to the court and say, this is what we've observed, you know, it's going well, or this might be a benefit. You talked about poverty and that being, you know, a leading cause for the neglect that you guys see. Is there a role for the CASA or do you see resources being given so that some of that neglect may not need to happen if it is directly caused by poverty? So in Essex County, one of the biggest issues we have is housing. That would be one of the reasons for neglect is housing, you know, adequate housing, you know, ability to house your child. Um, that's a tough one. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of other programs and nonprofits that are working on, you know, housing for a lot of different individuals with a lot of different, you know, circumstances. But I would have to say in Essex County, that is the number one challenge is housing. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to tell you, COVID has only made it worse. Yeah. And inflation and everything else. And all yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, where I am, you know, the majority of our children um, are removed from Orange, East Orange, Irvington and Newark which are, you know, very urban areas. And so, you know, those, those are the areas that uh, are hard hit by that, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, it's really sad, you know, cause it's not the perception either that I feel like most people have of children in foster care. It's not that like mom was working two jobs and we were living out of our cars. So we were removed. It was, um, you know, of course, mom was a dry addict or mom was an abuser or whatever is the, typically the perception. Those cases do happen. I also think that, you know, those are the cases that are sensationalized in the media as well, mm -hmm. you know, because they're sensationalized. Right. I'm not saying they don't happen, but from a media's perspective, you know, they they don't necessarily report that the housing crisis is why a lot of kids are in foster care as well. So I feel like you've done a really great job at. Um, like selling the program because I'm like, oh, I could be a CASA and I hope other people feel like, oh, I could do this. But tell me from your perspective, what makes a good CASA or like what are the qualities you guys are looking for? 
right, right. No, you know, and we often, you know, have this conversation with pers- prospective volunteers. The first thing that that we tell someone is that, you know, time and time is valuable to everyone. We ask that, you know, when you decide to be a CASA, that you don't just do it in the moment because you're bored or you have extra time at that moment, mm. you know, because the time commitment that we ask, more importantly, the 18 to 24 months is really important. And, and the reason we ask that is because we don't want another revolving door in the child's life. You know, they've experienced enough of that and we're trying to not add to that. So that to me is one of the most important qualities. You know, um, people oftentimes find that the mission speaks to them, but you know, they don't have the time and that's okay. You know, and I tell people that there's other ways that they can support a CASA program. They can donate, you know, because we are a nonprofit they can help us spread the word, you know, um, because the more people that know about us, the more potential we have for getting volunteers. So they can help us spread the word. And, and you know, there's also, we do other types of events and community outreach that they can also be engaged and involved with. It also helps, you know, just build awareness, not only of child abuse, you know, and neglect, but also just of the CASA program in general. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still in April. April is actually um, Child Abuse and Neglect Awareness Month we did a program called Pinwheels to Prevention. And so uh, throughout our county, over 25 local businesses, we put out blue pinwheels, which are nationally representative of, you know, children deserving to have, you know, a safe, happy childhood. And so that's just another way that, you know, we build awareness throughout the community. That's great. So, okay. So we've talked about the commitment. I just had a question for you that I was thinking of, I don't know why it slipped my mind. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I know what it was. Okay. So I imagine that people could come into this work. Like what is the training involved? Like, is there training about abuse, neglect, the like trauma, the impact that that has on a child? How, like, how deep do you get into some of that training or just like cultural sensitivity? Because I could imagine somebody coming into this role and then being like, ah, this isn't how any kid should live and in like really putting their own bias um, or their own privilege into the mix. And so like, how do you guys uh, like tamper that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Well, I can say, first of all, that our pre-service training, which is, you know, the training that you have to do to become a volunteer that 32 hours, we cover as much as possible. We cover everything. We cover how the court process works. We cover why children are removed, how they were removed, how DCP and P works. We talk about cultural sensitivity, mm-hmm. we, which is really important. You know, we talk about being unbiased, you know, in terms of not bringing your own trauma or opinions or, you know, political views into this situation and how, you know, we need to effectively work to present this information to the judge. So we, we go over all of that. And then once you become a CASA, every year there's 12 hours of required continuing education. And so, you know, either through the CASA program or through community partners and universities and other organizations that put on programs, you know, CASAs take all kinds of extra training on domestic violence, on, you know, education neglect, on medical, you know, neglect. Um, They take things on, uh, you know, just a lot on cultural sensitivity and um, and things of that nature. So all those extra classes that we ask them to take is to keep them abreast of really what's going on in this in this field and how how it changes, you know, and, and what that looks like and how it affects, you know, the children that we're serving. Yeah, yeah. And how 
we need to uphold best practices and how our interaction with kids matter and like how we could really actually do more harm by, you know, projecting our own stuff or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's a tough balance because you want to say you want to equip as many people as you can, but you definitely need to make sure that you're not bringing another person into a child's life that you feel like isn't isn't going to be helpful. And then we have our, our, our paid staff, which are advocate supervisors who coach, you know, and, and mentor and work with the advocates so that, you know, they have someone to really bounce all this stuff off of. You know, it's not as though this advocate is is on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have someone that is working for the organization that is there to help them, you know, and to make sure that they continually understand, you know, the small wins are big wins. You know, because a lot of times people who are volunteers do come in and they're like, well, you could just fix it if you just do this. It doesn't work like that. We're talking about a complete family's life. It's just not what is appears to be the immediate fix right now. And what are resources required to maybe necessarily do what you think is the simple fix? And is that what you have perceived to be simple fix, something that has sustainability, right? So we continually tell our volunteers, we're working at small wins, you know, mm. to add up to a big win. And sometimes we hit the big win right off. But, you know, it's those small victories that really make a difference in a child's life. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not there to change the world. Like you're there to give a perspective and give a voice to the child. Yeah, I think that supervision is really, really key because honestly, regardless of how great anybody's trained, like I remember as a young social worker, I was like, I was getting triggered by things that I didn't know I'd get triggered by. And I just didn't happen to like one parent because guess what? She was exactly like my mother. And I have my own issues with my mother. Or like Just these things that happen that you would thought you were good leaving school. And then you're like, you know what? Actually, I'm feeling all these, these different emotions that I didn't know would come up. And just having somebody to like work through some of those things with you, having a supervisor say like, this is natural. This isn't easy work. Like we all have our own stuff. That's okay. Like nobody expected you to be a magician and bulletproof. So yeah, I love that you guys have the ongoing paid staff that are really there to provide that support. Absolutely. Okay, cool. You've talked about New Jersey, but I do want everybody to know that there's CASA everywhere. Um, And so you can Google it. C-A-S-A, you can Google G-A-L, which is guardian ad litem. It'll come up. You can see the national site and find a location near you. They're everywhere. So that's why I felt like this was so important because this is something everybody can do. And there are a lot of counties that say that they don't, you know, they have more cases than they have CASAs. So we do need people to step up and the opportunities there. And it, it is a big time commitment, but it's a lot less than becoming a foster parent, which I feel like a lot of people feel like it's either how's the child or nothing. Right. Two things to clarify. If you go to the National CASA site, there is, you can put in your zip code and you can find a CASA program near you. So that's, that's one way to find a CASA program. The other thing is that, you know, foster parents are not at all what we do. We, we never house the children. We never, you know, not even for an hour. That's not Mm -hmm. what the role of a CASA volunteer is. And and to go and become a foster parent is something that is done through, you know, your DCF offices, which is the Division of Child and Families, which is a whole nother different route that people often choose to do, which is great to support these youth. But they are, are signing up to um, be certified to have the youth move into their home and live with them 
while they, um, you know, are in foster care. Right. Yeah. And the CASA is coming in and meeting that child where they're at once a month. Yes. At minimum once a month. Yes. That's great. Well, I think that this has been really helpful. What's your, when you're going out into the community and you're saying like, this is your pitch or this is what you need, or this is what you would like people to know, or like, what's your main takeaway message for community members? Someone asked me, you know, what's my why one time, you know, like why I, I get up and do this every day. And, you know, you know, I've had the benefit of having three children of my own, you know, and, and so I, I look at my children and, and some of the, you know, situations they've gone that are just natural growing through being babies to adolescents to now, you know, young adults. And I fundamentally believe that if we want any child to grow up and be, you know, a participant in society and, and bring that value that every human being has to bring to their community, that we have to make sure that they're supported in their very infancy, mm-hmm. you know, and oftentimes, you know, children aren't. And, and when we look at where people end up for a lot of different circumstances, whether it's homelessness or teen pregnancy or in jail, a lot of it starts with them, you know, having an unstable childhood. Mm-hmm. And if somehow we can help to stop that or fix it, even for one youth, that is one more person that may not end up homeless and may not end up in jail. Right. And so I think that everyone deserves an opportunity to, you know, participate and give back to their community. And so we must, you know, we start where it starts with children, you know, and I know to some people that might sound cliche, but, you know, you, you don't fix things in an adult, you mm-hmm. know, you help children when they're young. Yeah. And even bigger, like it may, it may help somebody stay out of uh, jail or homelessness, but it may help somebody not continue this cycle with their kids and their kids. Cause we just see this as generational cycles of, of foster care and, and poverty and neglect, all of that stuff. So, I mean, it is going upstream. You have to go upstream and, and help the individual child. And I'm so with that answer. And I also think that it's our responsibility. Like the state is us like people housing these kids is us people being able to advocate for these kids is us so we need the community to step up and do whatever they can do because unwanted neglected abandoned whatever abused children do end up being our individual responsibilities you know what's interesting a lot of people think that it's not my community and they're wrong they just mm. don't know it in their mm. community but mm. um it's it's there are foster children from every walk of life and every you know socioeconomic level it is not necessarily just you know what the perception is that it's the poor minority child you know there are children who you know have parents that are very well off and very highly educated that may have that addiction problem those children too often end up in foster care. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there's a misnomer among a lot of people that it's just a certain, you know, type of child that ends up in foster care. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great, great points. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. I know that you're an amazing leader and champion for your cause. And thank you for the work that you do. Um, I think these programs are amazing. Every single CASA leadership that I have had um, interactions with seems so like the program really works. The model's there, the structure's there, um, and obviously the growth of it 
is for a reason and it's it's because of leaders like you so thank you for for being in the role that you're in and dedicating your life to this well thank you for having you know having me today and you know it's it's um it happens to be national volunteer week so Mm -hmm. you know i just like to do a big shout out to all of those casa volunteers in essex county and the state of new jersey and across the country that you know have have stepped up to to become a casa and you know make a difference in the life of a foster youth absolutely well, I will link to um, Essex County's website, and I'll also, in case we have listeners that are right there with you, um, and then I'll link to the the national one where you can put in your zip code. But you know, start down the path, and you can try and get the training and see. You know, you don't have to commit to everything right away. You can just get trained and then decide if you want to make the commitment. Okay. And there's information sessions you know, all of the programs provide information sessions so you can learn more. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope we have inspired you to at least go to the CASA website, check it out, maybe sign up for some training. This is such a critical need. Kids need a voice to be represented for them in court. And it sounds like CASAs do so much more advocating for them in their life, in their education. So please, if you have it in you, and I know that there's a lot of people that listen that would be great for this, go you know, do a little bit more research, put that on as as your goal for the summer. If you're already a CASA or you've been part of the CASA program, please put that experience in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. I know that we would love to see what your experience has been. And this really helps encourage others say like, okay, people are out there doing this. I guess I can do it too. So do your part, even if it's just sharing that you have experience with this organization. All right, guys, I hope that you are enjoying these summer vibes and I will talk to you next month.